minutes before she had to sing. Good job. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit would penetrate our hearts with your word this morning. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to respond as your word is preached today. Father, may anything that's of my flesh that's in this word today quickly pass. But Lord, may the things that are of your spirit truly penetrate our hearts and minds today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. True story, I had a teacher when I was a senior in high school who could not tolerate sleeping in his class. And one time I remember a guy fell asleep in his class and this teacher wadded up this piece of paper and walked over the, to the student who was kind of blissfully sleeping with his mouth wide open like that. And he dropped the paper in his mouth. Well, naturally, this guy woke up kind of thrashing around and half choking on the paper wad, which had that time become kind of a big, nasty spit wad after spending a few seconds in his mouth. But I must say, I don't remember him falling asleep in class again. Or I don't really remember anyone else falling asleep in his class again. That particular consequence got his attention. It reminded me of this, this cartoon that I found, reminded me of that. Here's all these animals taking turns tossing paper wads into this mouth of whatever animal this is while he's sleeping. And one of them says, if he keeps falling asleep, he has to suffer the consequences. Everyone gets a turn. So even though we un try to undo this fact of life and we try to find ways to avoid this reality, there are more often than not consequences to the choices that we make. Here's another cartoon that illustrates this. You probably can't read the, uh, the caption. It says, the dip in sales seems to coincide with the decision to eliminate the sales staff. <laughs> you think? And then we know that life is true when we see that what this cat indicates, oh yes, there will be consequences. If you've ever tried to wash a cat in a sink, you know that that's really true, don't you? But then many of us are like this kid who asks his parents, how am I supposed to think about the consequences before they happen? Isn't that true of us too? We really understand this. I uh, saw a program recently called Scared Straight. It's actually beyond Scared Straight. Several years ago, there was a documentary that showed prisoners talking to kids who were at risk or in trouble and really getting in their face and saying, here's what you're headed for. Well, now there's a documentary series on one of the cable channels called Beyond Scared Straits. Apparently, a lot of communities have done this in their jails where they'll bring kids who are at risk and they'll bring them in and uh, they'll give them a taste of what jail is like. And the idea is that there's going to be consequences if you continue this behavior. And so... That's, that's done with an understanding that's a reality in our lives, isn't it? The consequences teach us, don't they? We're encouraged to be uh, thinking about consequences before they happen. And if we're honest, we can't really say we've not been warned. So many consequences are really quite avoidable if we heed the warnings. Well, here's a dictionary definition of consequences. The effect, result, or outcome of something occurring earlier... The accident was the consequence of reckless driving, as an example, or the act or instance of following something as an effect, result, or outcome. 
So though we typically think of consequences as the negative outcome of poor choices, the reverse is true. Making good choices often leads to good consequences. However, we generally think of good consequences more as rewards than as consequences. There are some other examples where your behavior leads to either good or bad consequences. Drinking and driving, for example, we hear about that so much. You do that, you drink and you drive, and the consequences can be bad or even fatal. Texting and driving, really the same thing. But how about the consequences of eating and health? For example, poor eating habits can lead to health issues, while good eating habits can improve your health. How about exercising and health? There can be positive or negative consequences. Boy, you don't want to meet her in a dark alley, do you? Anybody recognize Hannah there? There can be positive or negative consequences depending on whether or not you decide to be physically active. And with some other examples, we see similar potential outcomes, either positive or negative. How about hard work and finances or spending and finances? How about studying or the lack thereof and grades? Even something as simple as brushing your teeth with outcomes related to your dental health, not to mention your breath. Some consequences seem like sure things. If you don't brush your teeth, for example, your breath will stink. If you didn't know that, let me be the first to tell you. A consequence of that may be that people don't want to be around you. If you continue to spend more money than you make, you will eventually be broke and won't have any money at all. But the other thing we notice from life, as well as from Scripture, is that consequences can be proverbial. In other words, consequences, while very real and often likely in our lives, are more proverbial general rules, and they're not always absolute, are they? If you think about various examples. With some things, they're not always guaranteed. As we'll see, still other things may not be guaranteed in this life, but there is a reality that they are guaranteed eventually. You might get away with some behaviors and not reap the normal, even expected consequences. We've all heard of lifelong abusers of their bodies, either through poor diet or a lack of exercise or smoking or some other unhealthy habit who live to be 100. This lady's actually 100 years old. And there she is with a drink in her hand and a cigarette in her other hand. We've also seen the person who works hard all of his life, very careful with his spending, but still can't ever seem to get ahead. The word has many warnings for us about the truth of consequences. Perhaps the one that immediately leaps to mind for many of us is from Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 7, where it reads, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now this is an interesting passage because it reveals so much about the reality of this principle that we're talking about, consequences. First, let's note that we only fool ourselves if we think we can get away with anything. That is, if we think there are no consequences. Paul tells the Galatians here, do not be deceived. He doesn't want them to foolishly think 
that God does not see and know everything we do. Not just everything we do, Scripture affirms, but everything we think. It tells us in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4, tell us, You know, speaking of God, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before we even speak a word, God knows what we're going to say. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty sobering fact to me. That is pretty sobering. God doesn't just see what I do. He knows what I think all the time. I don't think there's a person in this room who wouldn't be embarrassed, even the best person among us, who wouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed if another person in this room knew our every single thought. We have this tendency to hope or think that we can get away with things, that we can keep them hidden. We think, well, if I don't get caught, if nobody knows about that, well, then it's okay. There are behaviors that are private and no one ever sees. There are always thoughts that no one ever knows. So if no one ever knows, what's the harm? That's our tendency. That's our sinful tendency to think that. It's like the guy who's traveling on business and he takes off his wedding ring, right? If the woman he sleeps with on the road trip doesn't know he's married and it's just a one-night stand and he's in a city where no one else knows him so he can't get caught and there's really no way his wife could find out, then, hey, what's the harm? That's the line of thinking that we can fall into if we don't understand this truth that we shouldn't be deceived. God is not mocked because God sees everything. Or more common, the man who in the privacy of his room accesses porn. Well, nobody is ever going to know, he thinks. Nobody will ever find out. Well, first of all, that may or may not be true. Maybe nobody will find out. But the reality is... Sin almost always takes us farther than we intend to let it take us. It's the rare sin that no one but God ever really knows. But this illustrates our sinful tendency with some behavior, some of which isn't even an action. It's not even something we do, but maybe just thoughts that we never act on. Yet these are also thoughts that we never take captive to the obedience of Christ. Thus they are still leading to sin. However, Paul says, don't kid yourself. God sees, God knows. And he will not be mocked by your behavior, by your sinful choices. And here's where the rubber meets the road. There are consequences to those sins, whether anybody else ever knows about them or not. In the grand scheme of things, those consequences might not always be manifested in this life. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but eventually you will reap what you sow. Now, in our city life, we don't often think about, and consequently, we don't always really understand these agrarian analogies in Scripture. Reaping is harvesting. It's getting what you plant in the ground. Sowing is planting seeds. The idea here is if you plant corn, you don't get apples. If you plant soybeans, you don't get wheat, and you shouldn't expect to. If you plant sinful deeds, you won't get eternal life. And what's more, you're quite likely to suffer misery in this life as a result of that sin. 
sinful deeds planted will bring a harvest of destruction. Now, as we've noted, this is often true in this life. We've heard the phrase, what goes around comes around. For example, chronic alcohol abusers usually live a pretty chaotic lifestyle. Sometimes they'll get arrested, often more than once, and usually there's no stability in their lives. But even though this is usually the case, sometimes they seem to get away with this abuse of their bodies and their relationships, at least for a time. But this passage of Scripture tells us that eventually they will reap what they sow. There's a truth to the consequences of their lifestyle choices. They may seem to get away with it for a while, but eventually, unless there's intervention, this will catch up with them. And we're going to look at the idea of intervention here in just a minute. This is true of any sinful choice in our lives. Verse 8 tells us, again, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit or sow to the flesh? Well, here's an idea. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fancy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. So there's this reality, what Scripture tells us. But I have to tell you that I still struggled with this passage of Scripture because on the surface, it seems to contradict some other things I believe Scripture teaches. For example, the reality of grace in Scripture. The reality that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reality that all of our sins are covered under the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for every sin I ever committed or will commit. So that's why it's good for us to wrestle with Scripture. And it's also why we can't ever build a doctrine on one isolated passage or verse. It's important for us to remember, for example, here, that Paul wrote this letter to believers. That is, I believe, another instance where Paul's not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting himself. But he's encouraging us here to live up to what we already know to be who we are in Christ as believers in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the challenges to understanding this passage. If you just do a surface reading of this passage of Scripture without an understanding of the whole of Scripture, it also seems to indicate that we can somehow earn eternal life. It might also make us think there's no hope for sinners. After all, Paul tells us here in Galatians 6 that the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life, and the reverse is true as well. Now, isn't sowing something we do? Isn't that referencing our choices, again, the things we do? But Paul also wrote just a few chapters earlier to these same Galatian Christians in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that Paul refers to here were the laws, 
the rules that enslaved the people before they knew the grace of Christ. They were trying to earn their way to God by keeping rules, and this was nothing less than bondage for them. But Jesus had a better way. Paul also wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, a familiar passage to many of you, Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here, and in so many other places in the New Testament, we see the wonderful truth of the gospel. It's God's grace. It's his completely unearned and undeserved favor toward us that saves us. It's God's wonderful gift to us. Our salvation is not the result of what we do or what we don't do. But here's where we begin to make this connection between this truth and the truth of consequences, which again on the surface might seem to be somewhat contradictory. That is, on the one hand, the truth that we cannot earn and do not deserve the salvation purchased for us in the blood of Jesus, and on the other hand, the truth that we reap what we sow. Don't the, isn't there a dynamic tension between these two things? If we continue in the Ephesians 2 passage and we read verse 10, we read this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that we should walk in them. In other words, that we should do what he's made us to do. Another version reads, for we are God's masterpiece. The Greek word there is poema. We are God's poem. We are his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And still another version of this same verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, no, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. He saved us so that we can do the good things he planned for us to do. It's the work that as believers we had better be doing. So when Paul writes to the Galatians in the passage we read earlier that there are consequences to how we behave, to our choices, let's not just think it's the bad consequences. He's recognizing a spiritual reality. For us as believers, it's a promise for good consequences. We will reap the joys. We will reap the blessings and even the rewards of eternal life as we sow to the Spirit. We don't have time to explore this fully today, but Paul here is affirming what I believe about heaven. There will be levels of reward in heaven. So while our works do not earn us eternal life, there's a very real sense in which our works, our faithful following of Christ and doing his will, results in eternal rewards for the believer in Christ. So Paul's saying here to us in Galatians, live up to, live up to what you already are in Christ. You're not slaves to sin anymore, he's telling us. Because you're not slaves to sin, don't plant those seeds of destruction in your life again. You don't have to, because now you're a slave to righteousness. Plant good seeds that will develop and grow in this life and in the next. 
So our salvation is not a result of works, but it's really the other way around, if you think about it. Our works are a result of our salvation in the lives of those who are truly in Christ. If you are truly in Christ, the practical outworking of being changed into his image is that you will bear fruit. You will be transformed. And that means you will do the good works that he's prepared for you to do. That brings us to another related passage of Scripture that looks at these ideas. It's from Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 20. Let me read it. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this passage too has some sobering thoughts, I believe. Think of what Paul tells us in verse 21 of Romans 6 when he asks, the Romans, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. He's saying when you were not in Christ and you were sinning with impunity because you were a slave to sin, what kind of harvest did you reap? What good did that do for you? Think back. Remember what that sin got you. Remember what that sin earned you in consequences. What were the consequences of those sinful choices? Did they lead to life? No, Paul writes. You are now ashamed of those things because now you recognize those sins for what they were. They were the things that result in death, at least eventually. It's almost as if Paul is saying, is this really where you want to go again? You really want to go there again? You know the consequences of that behavior. You know where it takes you. So why even consider going there again? Why even think about putting back those chains of sin that held you captive, that kept you as slaves to sin? So Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Apart from Christ, Paul tells us here, righteousness has no influence in our lives. Apart from Christ, we're not devoted to God, we're devoted to our sin. This is, as one commentator notes, a strong expression of total depravity. It settles the question. It proves that they had no native goodness. The argument which is implied here rather than expressed is that now they ought to be equally free from sin since they had become released from their former bondage and had become the servants of another master. So Paul's argument here is drawn from the experience, the practical experience that Christians have had with sin when they were not in Christ. In other words, they've tried it. They've tasted it. They know the consequences, the effect of sin in their lives. Paul implies that if they've experienced the truth 
of these consequences and knowing the tendencies of the sin in their lives, they won't indulge in sin now. In verse 22 of Romans 6, Paul writes, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And this too is a consequence, a positive one. Ongoing practice of service to the King of Kings, that is doing those good works that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 10, leads to holiness. That's a benefit. Just as surely as practicing sin leads to death. It's implied here, though not expressly affirmed, that in this service, which leads to holiness, they received important benefits, as in the service of sin, they had experienced many evils. The final result, the ultimate consequence will be. At present, this service produces holiness. Hereafter, it will terminate in everlasting life. A great place to begin to finish this morning as we consider truth and consequences is with verse 23 of Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's where we begin to make a clear distinction between our earthly understanding of consequences and a more fully biblical understanding of consequences. If someone drinks and drives and ends up arrested for that, don't we tend to think that this person kind of got what he deserved? And while I think it's imprudent to say who might be in hell, just for illustration purposes this morning, I think we could all agree that someone like Adolf Hitler, who sowed such evil and destruction in this world and death, would deserve punishment even in hell. If we could speculate, for the time being here, that Hitler is likely in hell, we'd no doubt think that hell is the consequence of the life that he lived creating hell on earth for millions of people. And you know what? We'd be right. Because verse 23 of Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, wages are what you earn. In a sense, wages are what you deserve because you work for it, right? At least we always think of wages in the context of jobs. So Paul tells us when you work at sin, what you've earned is death. So where does that leave you and me? Well, if we're honest, we have to recognize the sad truth that we're right where Hitler was apart from Christ. The wages of our sin is just as much death as his. That's pretty hard for us to stomach, isn't it? It's hard for us to, to maybe uh, grasp that reality that we deserve death because of our sins just as much as Adolf Hitler and all the things that he caused, all the sins that he committed. We may not be mass murderers, but our sin earns us hell too. But as believers in Christ... It doesn't end there. As Christians, where we are is where Paul was at the end of Romans chapter 7, where he writes in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. So he's recognizing he has this sin nature in him. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Where does sin lead? It leads to death. And then he writes, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And then continuing in Romans 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Isn't that what Paul was telling us in Galatians 6? As Christians, we don't get what we've earned. Grace intervenes. Grace intervenes. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to any sin we've ever committed or any sin we will commit in the future. But here's the good news. Here's where grace intervenes. Jesus has already suffered those consequences on our behalf. And because of that, believers in Christ escape the eternal consequences of our sin. So even though we don't always escape the consequences of sin in this life, it's still true that someone had to pay the price for our sin, and Jesus did. We see this in the idea between the, with the contrast between wages and a gift here. Something we've truly earned and truly deserve, wages, and the gift, something we cannot earn and do not deserve. There's a clear difference there. Praise be to God, as those who are in Christ, we don't get what we truly deserve. If the wages of sin is death, eternal death, as contrasted with eternal life, and Scripture declares there is no one righteous, meaning that we're all sinners, then what we truly deserve, what we've truly earned as our wages, is death. So in grateful response to this good news, that in Christ, grace intervenes. Grace intervenes in the eternal consequences of our sinful choices. So Paul says to us, so because of these things, let's plant the things of the Spirit. Or as he says, let's sow to the Spirit. Let's be led by the Spirit. Let's abide in Christ and His words. And let His words abide in us. Let's set our minds on the things that are above. Let's not be conformed to this world, but let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news? Every one of us here deserves death. I'm not talking about your body dying. I'm talking about eternal death apart from Christ. But grace intervenes. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are a grateful people. And we remember, Lord, that without the intervention of your grace and your mercy, we would deserve death. Father, we also recognize the truth of consequences in our lives. Lord, we recognize that there are consequences Father, help us to live up to what we already are as followers of Christ. Help us, Father, to sow to the things of the Spirit rather than the things of the flesh. And, Father, when we do wrestle with our fleshly desires, our fleshly sins, Lord God, we pray that the consequences you allow in this life would only serve to point us back to you and to your grace and to your mercy that we want to lean on and we want to rely on each and every day of our lives. 
We thank you, Father, that though there are consequences, that these consequences were borne by Jesus as he bled and died on the cross, and that the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, washes away those consequences in eternity. We're grateful for that truth, Father. Help us to rest in that, but not just rest in that, Lord, but gratefully respond by sowing to the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.